Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Dr. Kelly-Ann Allen. Kelly is a recently arrived lecturer in the faculty on the back of a well-established career as an educational and developmental psychologist. Kelly firmly commits herself to academic research that's of genuine use to the education community. So, I caught up with Kelly to learn more about the broad area of social and emotional learning, as well as her specific interest in school belonging. I guess um, social emotional learning is the term that we use to describe the processes and competencies that relate to the management of emotions, um, as well as those fundamental foundational skills uh, that we we build upon to relate to others. So, so social skills is a part of social emotional learning, as is coping and resiliency, adaptability and um, things like self-efficacy. So as a non-psychologist, when I think of emotions, I'm thinking of anger. I mean, what, what are we talking about here? We're talking about being able to identify a range of emotions, including anger um, and feeling sad and, and not just the negative, but also the positive, but learning um, processes in which we can regulate those effectively so that they're social, socially acceptable and we're able to um, function in society. And presumably in a classroom. So when, we're t- when your interest in emotions is very much based around the classroom context, the Absolutely, school context. Absolutely, yeah. How do emotions play out at school in a classroom? I guess emotional regulation um, is particularly important in respect to learning behaviours um, and, you know, approaches to learning and uh, fitting in within the classroom context. Um, you know, a student, for example, that can't regulate their emotions effectively or has trouble with change and adaptability will have trouble transitioning from different classes and in different contexts. Um, and we see this um, in lots of examples um, with students and there's interventions that can take place around around that. Um, in, from where I'm coming from, um, from the perspective of looking at that sense of belonging and school belonging to school, um, the research says really clearly that those social and emotional competencies are really important for students to also feel um, that sense of connection to school. So what can school do about emotions? I mean, you're kind of, are there things that you're trying to work with teachers and schools in terms of building emotions, working with emotions, developing emotions? There's actually a lot that schools can do in this respect. Um, there's there's many um, programs that look at um, teaching emotional competencies in the classroom. Um, you know, some of them have had fallen previously under the Kids Matter framework. Um, we see things like Bounce Back and Mind Matters. Um, teachers, um, you know, can have a role in teaching some of those competencies sort of in day-to-day interactions as problems arise. Um, teaching social skills, it's... Um, there's lots of opportunities, I guess you could say, um, to, to address some of those, um, you know, em- emotional learning opportunities, whether it's through um, circle time approaches um, or circle solutions, as, I, as it's now called, I think, um, restorative justice. There's, mm. there's lots of opportunities that naturally occur and arise in a school setting. Now, I'm also thinking about teachers. I mean, do you focus at all on teachers' emotions or is the focus very much on students and their own emotions? 
in terms of um, teacher teachers' emotion, I think we're 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 at a time um, where we're looking at teaching as a profession that is almost in crisis. It needs urgent attention. Um, we're looking at um, a profession with one of the highest burnout rates, um, one of the highest dropout rates for particularly early career professionals. So um, even though it's not a direct research focus of my own, um, it's certainly an area that needs consideration um, with anybody that's researching in that space. You know, it's all well and good to develop um, whiz-bang interventions and strategies, um, but if teachers are the ones that are implementing it, then, you know, I think we have to be really careful not to be overburdening them with more responsibility and, and things to do. Um, not that they're not capable or have a role to place, but I think we need to look at alleviating some of that practical stress and pressure on teachers um, and support them. So rather than um, telling them they need to do X, Y, Z, um, you know, I think academics and researchers have a role in providing them with mm. tangible resources that they can actually use. So there are practical things we can do. I'm, I'm also interested in it from a theoretical point of view. I mean, just this whole area, what theoretical traditions are you drawing upon? Before I came into academia, I was a school psychologist for 10 years at a couple of schools on the Mornington Peninsula. And there was one thing I noticed about being a school psychologist. A student would come into your office, they may be referred by someone, but um, particularly in the secondary school, most of them would self-refer. And the one thing I noticed about working with these students was that you would never just treat the student or work with the student as an individual, that there were um, often opportunities to then work with parents, to work with teachers, perhaps um, the issue that may have arisen um, could have prompted a new policy or a new school rule or perhaps even an intervention with peers um, or even a class classroom intervention. So, you know, from seeing that one student, there were multiple systems and levels um, that often required some kind of intervention to best support that student. So in terms of a theoretical framework, obviously the socio-ecological and systems work really um, speaks to me. And so when I'm looking at um, my research interest, which is sense of school belonging, I'm really looking at looking at it through that socio-ecological lens. And when we look at um, social and emotional learning research, um, we're also seeing the emergence of that. Now you say viewpoint. obviously the socio-ecological approach. <laughs> I've never heard of it. So, I mean, <laughs> who are the names? What's the ideas? What's the what's the concepts there? Well, I guess um, you know the big gun that we think of when we think about socio-ecological theory or bio-socio-ecological theory is Bronfenbrenner, and you pro you probably have heard of the micro, meso, exo, um, and macro systems involved in socio-ecological theory. Um, and, and in each of those layers, um, there, are, there are many influencing factors that impinge on the individual development and context for that student. So even at the macro level, when we think about um, government-driven priorities, legislation, um, even cultural positioning of the school, um, you can see how within the school context that can be very influential. Mm. Take the prioritisation of standardised testing, for instance, and how that has 
been attributed to a systemic pressure or systemic anxiety to perform to meet standards. So the individual isn't just stressed because of themselves, they're stressed because of the context within which they... Right. Absolutely. And that's not to say the individual doesn't have a role to play, but um, we also need to look at those other Mm. environmental and systemic factors. Now, you work on school belonging and school connectedness in particular. I mean, can you explain those concepts? Yes. Well, school belonging is a, I guess it's a construct that describes the student's sense of affiliation to their school. Um, you know, how much they they feel that they, they're attached to their school. Um, and, and when we talk about school, we're very much talking about that, that school environment, peers and relationships with others. Um, that sense of connectedness or that social connectedness is really how individuals um, relate socially and, and feel that sense of connection with others. And so what do we know about school belonging? For a long time, we've understood that um, a sense of school belonging is fundamentally important for a student's experience at school. So we've understood it to be a construct that relates to things like academic achievement, self-efficacy, and a range of other factors, even, um, you know, including things like um, visits to doctors and physical health. Mm. So it's not just about psychological health and well-being or even academic outcomes, which we know are positively related to school belonging, but we also know that it has a, a physical component as well. And that part of the research, the, the physical um, side of things, is really emerging at the moment yeah. and um, is becoming a really interesting area to tap into. So I was just wondering, actually, how do you empirically research something like school belonging? I mean, do, is it all self-report? I mean, are you using physiological measures? I mean, how, how do you actually research this practically? Um, a lot of the research, and I think this is probably one of the um, one of the criticisms of um, the field, is that a lot of it is based on self-report, mm. um, which provides a really good foundation for us. And I think it's going to prove to be a really good springboard for more objective measures in in the future with how we understand school belonging. So while we know a, a stack of information about it, we know um, the benefits of it, we, we even know some of the main factors that are related to school belonging, um, things like that, that importance um, of that teacher-student relationship, amongst other things. Um, we, we've got a lot more to learn um, about at how it can be fostered. And the, the tricky thing about school belonging is that it's, it's influenced, it's highly influenced by many factors mm. within the environment. Um, so, and it's also such a unique and individual experience um, that, you know, there's, there's many interventions that could take place. If I had to pin you down as a, as a kind of researcher, what's your kind of preferred methodology? I started off with a meta-analysis. But with my, my background as a school psychologist, I really um, am drawn more towards that output and putting, uh, translating that research into um, practical, usable, um, friendly resources that people can use. So um, in terms of methodology, I am looking at approaching things, not necessarily from the methodological core, but rather looking at at ways of approaching research that is going to have the best outcomes for people who will benefit the most. Mm. So while I've started off with a meta-analysis and looked at what are the main influences of school belonging, I'm now wanting to um, go into developing an objective measure using a socio-ecological framework 
um, that can be used by schools to measure school belonging, but also um, increase or maintain it as well. So developing a measure which actually can be practically used as well as academically used. Absolutely, yeah. Excellent. I've seen yeah. you, you describe yourself using Paul Posner's idea of a pracademic. Yes. Which is a really interesting kind of shift in, in professional identity. So, I mean, how, does, how are you finding that working out now that you're actually in a university and not in a school? The pracademic side of things is very much um, related to the translation of research into practice user-friendly resources for schools um, and not causing extra burden on schools and assisting schools to um, translate perhaps their practices, particularly um, as they relate to school belonging, but translate things that they are already doing um, in respect to fostering um, school belonging so that it's not an add-on, it's an adaption, if, mm. that, if that makes sense. How does that then kind of square with you having to write 8,000-word journal articles that three people are going to read? Do you find yourself, do you find that <laughs> frustrating? Or I, um, I've been quite conscious in trying to build a social media presence. Mm. So I use forums like Instagram, Twitter, and even over the weekend um, to the demise of hours of productive time explored TikTok after oh, yeah, reading yeah. about it in the financial review. I'm not sure how TikTok will be used as a forum of disseminating research because these young people that are, are creating these videos are really engaging. Mm, they're very good. <laughs> and they're very, yes, they're very well pr produced 15 second videos with a lot of content in that. So I think I need a lot of work and PD. To how does to Instagram that. work? I've not met many academics who Instagram. No, well, I use, um, it, it's a visual forum. So it's spent, I probably spent about 12 months thinking about what can a psychologist mm. um, post on Instagram. Instagram. How can you make yourself grammable? Yes, that's right. But you, there's it, there's a generous word limit with Instagram as opposed to Twitter. And I think if you, um, you know, say if you did write an article, a peer-reviewed article, you could perhaps um, take a screenshot of that page and link it in your bio. Or you could even, um, you know, d develop a, a really nice visual image and a couple of key quotes and, and use that as a forum to disseminate the research. And you'd be surprised at, at how well that some, can sometimes get picked up. I was going to say, who are you engaging with? What's the audience on Instagram? Are academics there? Or? Yeah, there's academics. Um, I, ha I had a first look at my um, uh, statistics mm. um, the, other, the other day. I have a large following in the US for some reason, and I think that might um, sort of fit in. Um, I'm a bit of a fan of Fred Rogers. He's a he's a television presenter, and I think um, perhaps it's been some of my bridging research to some of his ideas has been really popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and not everybody in Australia knows who Mr. Rogers is. Yeah, yeah. So you need to piggyback on the back of a celebrity and make your research kind of... <laughs> Get that <laughs> That's push. right. Pity is not alive. So how does Twitter work for you? There's a lot more academics on Twitter um, and politicians and also journalists. And so that can sometimes be really helpful with picking up ideas in, in a media cycle. Um, both Twitter and Instagram have, um, you know, led to lots of opportunities for other interviews um, and other public forums to disseminate research. So that's been really important. Um Probably nothing has been more successful than writing, um, you know, those popular kind of publications for forums like the, um, the Conversation or Cyclopedia, which is the Australian Psychological Society's blog. Um, they, they're read by a lot of journalists. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, if they're reading um, the article at the right time and it, it fits within the appropriate media cycle that's happening, um, that can lead to 
more opportunities to disseminate the so research. So in some ways you're a kind of new breed of academic that sees themselves, as you say, one foot in the practical camp, one foot in the academic camp, very active on social media, writing for different audiences. You're just getting the word out there. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to me um, because I, you know, be, worked within a school context. My friends are teachers. I know that there's not many of them. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that I don't know any <laughs> teachers that are reading peer-reviewed journals regularly. Mm. And that's no criticism on the profession at all, but we're looking at a very time-poor profession um, and, and resource-poor profession. I, I haven't worked in a school that has had um, database subscriptions to be able to access those journals. Um, I'm not sure, um, being a psychologist, I know our professional, the Australian Psychological Society, um, as a part of their membership, you have a, a link to be able to access journal databases and subscribe to different journals. I'm not sure that's the case with teachers. Uh, their PD also in some schools, um, they're not able to necessarily have that flexibility to choose their own professional development. Sometimes their professional development is offered to them. It's a mandatory at the first two days of term. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, I think that translation of research is really important for those for those reasons. But so, it must take a lot of time if you're up at the weekend on TikTok. I mean, how do you find <laughs> the time to do all this? I think it's just it needs to become a, a natural part of, um, you know, what's considered to be impact and what's considered to be dissemination because you're talking, these social media forums are talking to a public audience. Uh, and so, you know, you we as researchers, we invest a lot of time writing peer-reviewed articles. Mm. Um, and so we now really need to sh shift some of that focus to making sure that, that that's disseminated. There's no point writing a journal article when when you're wanting to benefit the people um, who that, that that research is speaking to the most. You need to be able to be able to translate it, whether yeah. it's a report, whether it's flyers, whether it's um, you know, through infographics or, or whatever on social media, we need to be able to um, really translate that research. So where should we go on Twitter and Instagram? What are your handles? How can we find you? <laughs> My handles are at Dr. Kelly Allen. And um, that um, goes for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And TikTok, although I can't promise you that I'll be on TikTok for much longer. <laughs> Excellent. Branding is the way forward. Branding well, is the way forward. Well, thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk. It's been great to hear about your work and good luck with it all. Thank you. It's been lovely being here.